We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are spiritually prepared and ready to focus on the study of the Word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege that we can come together to focus upon your word this evening. We just thank you for another opportunity to study, to learn, to grow, that we may, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, be challenged in our own Christian life to walk more faithfully, consistently with you, that we might be reminded of your grace, be reminded of the way in which you sustain us and provide for us, and the way in which you are able to enable us to face and surmount every situation and circumstance, every problem and adversity that we face in life. Father, we're here to glorify you. We're here to be a witness, both in terms of our life as well as verbally to those around us. We're here to tell others the good news, the great news about Jesus Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that Christ died on the cross, and that we can have eternal life through faith in him. And Father, we pray that you might give us opportunities to give the gospel to those around us to help them understand more and more about who Jesus is and what he did for us, that we might uh, be a faithful witness. And Father, as we study tonight and as we continue to study, strengthen us, help us to be more prepared as uh, spiritual warriors in the angelic conflict for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Peter. And we're studying about the Trinity, taking a few lessons to deal with this topically because of the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 1 verse, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. We've looked at the doctrine of the Father. Is there a, there is a reason. It's a basic reason when things don't work, they're either not plugged in or turned on. We're looking at the Trinity. We've looked at the Father. We looked last time at the Son in the Old Testament. We're going to continue that tonight a little bit, and I hope we're going to get into the Holy Spirit and focus on how all three members of the Trinity are revealed in the, in the Old Testament. Now, when we look at 1 Peter, I don't want this to be simply a lesson in going through various verses related to the Trinity, but I want to tie this together in a way for for each of us that may, may make it a little more usable. There are people you may witness to, that you will have opportunities to witness to, maybe somebody who's come out of a Unitarian background, maybe somebody who's out of a Jewish background, maybe somebody that's coming out of a an Islamic background where this concept of the Trinity has been distorted for them. And we need to have a few places in our Bible where we've underlined verses and we've marked the text so that we can go back and we can move through these verses and help show how the idea of multiple persons in the Trinity is not something unique to the Old Testament but can be found throughout throughout the Old Testament. It's not a Christian doctrine. It was there in Old Testament Judaism and it was expunged or reinterpreted 
out of Judaism after the destruction of the Second Temple and basically the appearance of Jesus who claimed to be, uh, who claimed to be God. So we went through this last time. The passage we're looking at in 1 Peter 1 3 begins with the statement, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. Whenever you read the Bible, one of the things I'm trying to prepare you to do is to be able to read the Bible intelligently as well as to think your way through the Scripture so you're not completely dependent upon a pastor uh, and teaching you. When we see phrases like this, even though this phrase that I pointed out a couple of lessons ago shows up three or four times in the New Testament, it's not just some formulaic statement. And it's easy for us to read that. Blessed be the God, Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's move on. No, there's a reason for that. And there's something significant about emphasizing the fatherhood of God and his relationship, the relationship of the first person of the Trinity to the second person of the Trinity in terms of what Peter is going to be saying in this epistle. Now, what is it that this epistle is focusing on? It's focusing on present adversity, difficulty, challenges, uh, facing the fiery trial, as it's mentioned uh, when we get down into 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, uh, uh, where is that, down around verse 8, uh, 8 or 9, uh, 9, tested by fire. Uh, six, though now, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, and later on it talks about facing the fi- fiery trial. So this is within the context of encouraging the these believers as they face adversity. And his starting point is with God himself, with understanding the relationship of the Son to the Father, because as we go through this, the Son plays a significant role in strengthening the believer. And so we see this from the very beginning. He's making this connection, and it emphasizes for us the deity of Jesus Christ, which means he is omnipotent, just as the Father is omnipotent, no more, no less. And therefore, as we are in Christ, and he is the head of the body he has provided for the body. And we see this when we get down into verses 6 through 8. As Peter says, even though now you've been grieved by various trials in verse 6, why is explained in verse 7 that the genuineness uh, of your faith uh, is tested by fire uh, to be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen you love. How do we come to love somebody? We have to know them. And so we connect this back to what he says at the beginning, that we have to understand the identity of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his person, because the more real he is to us, the more we love him, the more we love him, the more we obey him, the more we obey him, the more we grow and mature as believers, and we see his strength manifest in our lives. As Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Notice he doesn't say, I can do all things through the Holy Spirit who strengthens me. Holy Spirit strengthens us, just as he strengthens 
the Lord. But it's not that strengthening is not limited to the role of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ also strengthens us. He does that through the Word. He does it through the Holy Spirit. But this is what Paul is emphasizing. So it's important to understand the role, the significance of these members of the Trinity. So we started off looking at the fatherhood of God as it's revealed in the Old Testament and saw that that was not a a huge doctrine, but it is emphasized several times mostly with reference to God as the father of Israel. But there are a few passages that broaden that to recognizing that God uh, is the father of all believers, the father in relation to the Trinity, specifically when it talks about the son. Because if you have the son, as we've seen in these Old Testament passages, that assumes that there is a father. So those two personages are clearly emphasized in the Old Testament. Now, last time we looked at God the Son, and tonight, if we get there, we'll begin to look at the Holy Spirit as well in the Old Testament. Now, when I was finishing up last week, we were in Psalm 2-7. Psalm 2 is one of the most significant psalms in the Old Testament. I just want to review a few things very briefly here, and at the uh, because this passage talks about the Messiah as the Son of God. Now that's an important connection, and if you're if you are in evangelism with somebody who's a Jewish background believer or or Muslim background or excuse me Jewish background not a believer Jewish background or a a Muslim, then this is an important passage to look at that God has a son. It's clearly established in the Old Testament. We looked at Proverbs thirty verse four, and that led us to. Uh, the passage in Psalm 2-7, where the Lord declares of the Son, of the Messiah, who's earlier identified as the Messiah, identifies him as his Son. Okay, so we started in the first part of it. First three verses identify this conflict between God and the kings of the earth. The nations are raging. They are conspiring against God. They want to throw off his sovereign reign and rule, and they are... Uh, raising their hand against the Lord, that's one personage, and his anointed, Hebrew word there, Mashiach, critical verse. You have two persons there, and the passage clearly indicates that they are, uh, they are both divine. So the Messiah of verse, uh, verse two is the son in verse seven. Important to make those those connections. Verse 7, I, and that's the Messiah's talking, will declare this decree that the Lord, that is God the Father, has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is connected to inheritance. Now, as we look at verse uh, verse 7 here, we'll come back and look at some other, other aspects there. But the thing I really wanted to focus on was another aspect in 2.9. And in 2.9, we see... We see this statement, you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, who's that talking to? That is a father talking to the son. And in the English, you have these two words, break and dash. And I covered this last time, but I wanted to clarify this a little bit. You have these two different words. The Hebrew word for break is ra'ah and the Hebrew word for dash 
or shatter or smash, as it's translated in some places, is the Hebrew word nafatz. So I've color-coded this for you so you can follow it, that in Psalm 2.9, so what's going on here is that you have these two other verses, Job 34.24 and Jeremiah 51.20. And these same verbs are used in those verses. So the word break, talking about God breaking, or the, you, the Messiah, breaking them with a rod of iron, the one who breaks using that verb ra'ah in Job 34.24 is God. Okay, that means that Psalm 2.9 is attributing to the Son, the Messiah, the actions of deity. Okay, that's really important to understand because what we're looking at in this, this whole little study is emphasizing that, that the Old Testament sees this personage of the Son and attributes to him the attributes, the actions, the names that belong to God, the and God the Father. So he breaks ra'ah, that is, you, that verb is used in Job 34, 24, for what God does in breaking men. And then the second verb, dash, nafatz, is used in Jeremiah 51, 20, of, an, of the of future eschatological victory of God, that he will break the nation in pieces. So these two verbs, which are each used of God's actions, of God the Father's actions, or the Lord's actions, in Job 34.24 and Jeremiah 51.20, are used of the actions of the Messiah in Psalm 2.9. That tells us that Psalm 2.9 understands the Messiah to be fully God and doing what only God, uh, God can do. Okay? Then we went on from there to the next next point in Psalm two twelve. We read, "Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him." Now this uh, verb that is translated trust here really shouldn't be translated trust. The better translation is that they take their refuge in him. They take their refuge. I just punched that to turn it on. Uh, they take their refuge in him, and, um, and that is a verb that is only used in relation to God in the Psalms. Man is never to take refuge in other human beings. We don't take refuge in political parties. We don't take refuge with other nations. We don't take refuge in human beings. We can only take refuge in God. Here's a couple of passages. There we go. Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock. And we saw this reference to God as a rock in Hannah's uh, song in First Samuel 2 the other night, on Tuesday night, and there's various passages, we'll get back to that more fully next Tuesday night, where God is referred to simply as the rock. This is like an alternate name or the nickname for God. He's the rock. So we see that God is my rock in whom I, what, take refuge. That's the same verb that we have in Psalm 2.12. Psalm 57, one. be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. 
So the thing that we learn, a takeaway point from Psalm 18 and Psalm 57, 1, is that our only refuge is in God. When the storms of life assail, then we take refuge in our rock, who is the Lord. These are some great verses to memorize, uh, by the way. And so back to Psalm 2, 7, God decrees that you are my son. And actually, the way this is constructed in the, the Hebrew is that this is an eternal dec- decree. And this is restated several times during the life of Christ, and it is the uh, resurrection itself, which is the uh, focal point of this begottenness, that the begottenness is merely a way of expressing this relationship to God and that God the Son is the eternally begotten one that expresses this description of the relationship of the Son to the Father. So in Acts 13.33 we read, God has fulfilled this for their children and that he has raised up Jesus. So as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He's spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So this, this, this statement that the Son is the begotten of the Father lays this foundation. That is who he is in his identity. It's not talking about something that happens in time or something that happened at some point in eternity past. But this is expressing the eternal relationship uh, of the Son to the Father. So we looked at Psalm Psalm 2, looked at Proverbs 30. These are verses that indicate that God has a son. They demonstrate by looking at the context that the son that the father has, the son that God has, is fully divine. He is fully divine and he is he is uniquely related to the father. So as we look at that, then we want to go on to see, are there other places in the Old Testament, other places in Hebrew Scripture that emphasize the deity of this other personage, that if he is divine, he has all the attributes of the divine, he's eternal, he's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all of the attributes, he's immutable, he's righteous, he's just, he's loving, all of these things, he is equal in essence to the Father. And we find these, especially in Isaiah, and so I want to look at specifically two, uh, two verses here. We'll look at Isaiah 9, 6. And then Isaiah 7:14, two verses we've spent a lot of time on, and verses that you, I, I keep going over. These are crucial to understand. In Isaiah chapter nine, uh, verse six, we have this section from Isaiah that actually begins back in Isaiah chapter seven, and all of these are passages that link together, uh, giving a an encouragement to the southern kingdom of of Judah under Ahab that God has a plan and a future for the Davidic dynasty. Ahab is in the Davidic dynasty, and God is promising them that even though there are going to be uh, military conflicts, the Davidic dynasty is not going to be overthrown that eventually God will fulfill his covenant with David and establish uh, his son on the throne. And so we'll start with Isaiah 9, 6, and we see this emphasis here on the son. 
For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. There we have that title, a son is given. He's already a son. So that's that point from Psalm 212. He, is, I mean, Psalm 27, he is eternally begotten. He's already a son when he comes. The, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So we have a son who's born as a child. And that's really important to think that through. How is this son born as a child? So already a son, he's going to be born as a child. Now the ancient, uh, the, the Jewish Targum of Isaiah has an explanation in, uh, on this verse. And I put this up on the screen so you can see this. After citing the verse, they inserted a statement in the Targum that I have in italics that the Messiah in who, this is a reference to the Messiah in whose days peace shall increase upon us. So the idea that creeps into uh, modern Judaism later on, I mean post-Second Temple Judaism by about 900 or 1,000 B.C., that this passage is referring to a historical king or a historical figure is not in line with uh, the Targum of Isaiah and other more ancient uh, rabbinical writings that they understood this to be a messianic prophecy related to the descendant of David who would bring in his kingdom and establish peace on the earth. Now, as this starts off, we have this the first two lines that are in uh, parallelism in the Hebrew. Hebrew poetry parallels ideas, uh, not rhyming words. It parallels ideas, and sometimes it's uh, it's a synonymous parallelism where the language of the first line is just mirrored in the second line. Sometimes the second line is antithetical. It says the opposite of what the first line says. Sometimes the second line establishes or says something more than the first line. But here we have a parallel. The child and the son are parallel. They're talking about the same person. One is viewed as a child. One is already viewed as a son. The child is born, and the word born is parallel to given. So so you see there's a certain uh, parallelism here, but the first line is emphasizing the fact that the child enters into the human race the normal way he is born through the normal birth process. That emphasizes that this Messiah is human. He is fully human. But then the second line indicates there's something more than that. He is also God. He is divine. He is this son who's mentioned in, in Proverbs 30. He's the son who's mentioned in Psalm 2. He is a son who is given to the Jewish people as their Messiah. And what will be his role? Well, this is going to be developed in the next line. But first, we need to understand why it is that he enters into history. And we have this, is, this fulfillment in the New Testament. Hebrews 2.17 says that regarding uh, Jesus, regarding the Messiah, the Christ, that he had to be made like his brethren. 
because his mission is ultimately to die as a substitute for mankind, he has to become a human being. So Hebrews says he had to be made like his brethren. Psalm two, I mean, excuse me, Philippians two seven and eight says that that he came in the likeness of men. That means he came as a human being. He is like men. There's one difference: he didn't have a sin nature. Uh, and he's found in appearance as a man, which means he has the the uh, all of the uh, features of a human being. So he enters into the human race as a man, as a human being, but he is also God. He's also eternal. This is emphasized by the uh, fact that he is divine. Now, we'll go to Isaiah 7.14 in a minute, but this is emphasized in Isaiah 7.14 because the virgin's going to conceive and give birth, and she's going to name her son, what? Emmanuel, which is Hebrew, that means God with us. So she understands that this child is God with man. So the son is given. So this emphasizes his... his um, his dual origin as both human and as God. Then when we look at the names, the titles that are given to him that are developed in the uh, latter part of this, this verse, we see that all of these are terms that apply to deity. They're not terms that are applied to human beings. So first of all, he is called wonderful. Now, the way some of your translations may punctuate this they separate they, they some separate them as two different attributes wonderful comma counselor others put them together wonderful counselor they should be separated he's called wonderful the hebrew word that is translated wonderful here is the hebrew word pele p e l e and it's one of those words that is only used to describe god Throughout the scripture, this word, it never is used to describe a, a, a human being. And it's used in places such as Judges 13, 18, Isaiah 25, 1, and Isaiah 28, 29. He is, he is wonderful. Uh, in judge, in the Judges passage, in Judges 13, 17 through 18, Manoah, the father of Samson, says to the messenger of Yahweh, we talked about that terminology last week, the angel of the Lord should be better translated, the messenger of the Lord or the messenger of Yahweh. And he says, what is your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord or messenger of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? This is another name that is applied to God. It's the same word, Pele. So when this son that is given is given a title, wonderful is, is that title. Added to that uh, is a second term that is used there, and that is the word counselor, which is someone who provides wisdom for others, and God is the source of wisdom. So both of these are terms that relate to deity. The third title uh, that we uh, we see in that line is the title Mighty God. Mighty God is the term El Gibor. Now, it's unusual here because we just have the word El. We don't have Elohim. Elohim is typically translated God, but Elohim is a Hebrew word that has that I-M ending, which indicates a plurality. 
Now, he's not a plurality here. He's talking about the singular person of the second person of the Trinity. So it's very precise in using the term El as opposed to Elohim. He is the mighty God, and this is uh, he is El Gibor. And what's interesting is that word Gibor is also the word for a warrior. It's the word for, uh, it can be the word for a man. In fact, if you go over to Israel... And even though most of the people on the trip can't read what's written there in Hebrew, uh, outside the men's restroom, what it says is gibberim. That's how you know that you're going in the right room if you're a man. So it's, it refers to a man, a male, a warrior, someone of that stature. It has a broader meaning in modern Hebrew than it had in the ancient world. But it is El Gabor, the mighty God. And so this emphasis is that this son, this child who is born, is called God. Now that's not just, that's not a mistake. That's not just being hyperbolic. It is stating his character. So you have the term wonderful, which is uniquely applied to God. You have the term counselor, which is not unique to God, but it is distinctive in that it applies to one who gives wisdom and God is the source of wisdom. He is called Mighty God. And then the next line is identified as, uh, really it should be translated, Father of Eternity. Actually, I discovered as I've done more research on this translation because it's an odd phrase in the Hebrew that there are also some who believe that this should be translated Father of Eternal Life. And again, it's not talking about him being the father because the son is not the father. But if you're the father of eternal life, that's a way of saying you're the source of eternal life and that eternal life would come through the son. I believe a better translation is the father of eternity, indicating that he is eternal. It's attributing to the son eternal life and that he is the eternal one. And so he is also uh, this is also a term indicating uh, that he is, he's fully God. And then we come to the last, uh, one other phrase. Let me go to this verse before I lose it. Talking about mighty God, in just the next chapter in Isaiah 10.21, talks about the remnant will return to the mighty God, to El Gabor. So El Gabor is clearly a synonym for deity because you look at 10.20 in the context. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped to the house of Jacob, this is talking about at the end of the tribulation period, uh, will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. And then expressing that in a further sense, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. So El Gabor here is identified contextually as Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. So, again, this is an attribution that, that the phrase mighty God applied to God indicates true deity. Okay. Now, back to the last uh, point there on Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace because he is the one who will establish peace on the earth when he comes and establish his rule of iron, that rod of iron talked about over in uh, Psalm 2.12 where he breaks uh, the nations into pieces and establishes his rule upon the earth. He will establish peace and there will be peace on the earth. And this is when the uh, swords are beaten into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. 
That is a time when there is world peace. Not until then. The U.N. has tried to co-opt that title and co-opt that verse. They've got it chiseled out in the stone over the entryway into the U.N. building. So they are clearly making a messianic claim. You may never have thought about that before, but the U.N., by its very existence, claims to be be able to do what only the Messiah of Israel can do, which means that, what, what would you call that biblical term? Blasphemy, right? It is blasphemy. It is a slander against God. It is a form of self-idolatry. In some form, it's a shadow fulfillment of the nations raging against God in Psalm 2.1. So this is a just an, a, a, an abomination before God. So what we've said here is that when we look at Isaiah 9.6, it's a clear statement that the one who will come and establish his kingdom, the Messiah, the son of David, is fully God. Now, go back a couple of chapters to Isaiah 7.14, and we see the same thing mentioned there. Now, I've gone through Isaiah 7.14 a number of times in detail, but the point of this study is not to fully exegete Isaiah chapter 7, but to point out that what is being said here is, is distinctive. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, this there, there's a couple of signs that are going on here, and uh, the sign that we have here is a sign that is being given to the house of David. It's a plural you, and God is talking to the house of David, and this is a sign that God, that the house of David will continue. The context here is that there's a conspiracy between the uh, uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, to join together and to wipe out Ahab and, and uh, or Ahaz and to replace him with uh, a, a messianic, I mean, excuse me, with a non-Davidic king. So the Lord's going to give a sign. A sign means this is going to be something miraculous. I checked the other day. There's a Jewish annotated uh, New Testament, which I find to be fairly interesting uh, because it's not Messianic Jewish. It's just a Jewish annotated New Testament, and it's always interesting to go there to see what they're, how they explain different things. And they say that the problem that you have here is that the word here for virgin, which is the Hebrew word Alma, refers various times to young ladies, but it doesn't mean specifically virgin, which is true. However, the context of every usage is that it is referring to a young woman of marriageable age who would be a virgin. Uh, the other, So they point out that this should be just translated, a young woman will conceive and give birth to a, to a son, and they'll go, and in this particular article, they say that this is an everyday thing. And my question was, you missed the point. This is a sign. That means it's not an everyday thing by, by context. It clearly states this is something unique, distinct. It's miraculous. And so that, uh, that is why the rabbis in, uh, the second, third century BC, when they were translating the, uh, the, the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek of the day in Alexandria in northern Egypt because uh, in, in uh, uh, the Jewish community there no longer had facility in Hebrew. So they needed to have the Bible in their own language, uh, the, their spoken language, which was Greek. So when they, the rabbis translated into Greek, they used the word uh, parthenos to translate Alma. 
Now, Parthenos is a Greek word that specifically means virgin. So obviously the rabbis, before Jesus came along and muddied the water for everybody, understood that Alma meant virgin, and they translated it that way. So this is an accurate translation and communicates the thrust of the passage. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Again, we have that term son. This is so important. We have one divine person indicated as a father in the Old Testament. Now this other one that is identified as a son. And this son who is given birth to is called Emmanuel. He is called Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word meaning God with us. So we see that this this birth is so unusual, it's, it, it's called a sign, and that indicates that no normal birth is going to fit. It has to be something unique and distinctive that grabs everybody's attention. Of course, that could only happen if it was a virgin who uh, conceived. And then this, this child is going to be named by the mother as God with us. This indicates deity again. So this, again, is not something that is just a New Testament concept. Then we come to a third passage in Micah. Again, this is a great prophetic passage related to the birth of the Messiah and that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Ephrath. Ephrath was the founder of the city of Bethlehem. So it's referred to as Bethlehem Ephrata. And in this, if you look at the last last four lines here, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So some someone's going to be born. They're going to be born in Bethlehem. But that's not their beginning. Their goings forth would be from eternity. So if you can just nail down, remember these three passages, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, and Micah 5.2, you can have a pretty good conversation with somebody to let them know that the Bible clearly shows a second person, uh, second divine person in the Old Testament. He's given the attributes, names, and he performs the same actions as God. So that means he has to be God. All right. We've looked at the Father, we've looked at the Son, and now we need to look at the Holy Spirit. When we look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we'll actually discover that the term Spirit of God, Spirit of Yahweh, and even Holy Spirit are used more than references to the Father and the Son combined. So the Spirit of God shows up a lot in the Old Testament. What people do is they want to either depersonalize the Spirit as some sort of force emanating from God, something that's coming out of God. And so one of the things we have to establish, as we did when we first started talking about this, is that the Holy Spirit, like all the references to God, is, is referred to as a person and treated as a person. He is given attributes that can only apply to a person, not to a non-person. Non-person would be a tree or a rock or an idol of metal or something like that, or an impersonal force. You know, we're getting ready to see another Star Wars movie come out, and the force will be with everybody again. Uh, so that's, that's the idea. Uh, but the Bible emphasizes that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
is treated as a distinct person even in the Old Testament. So let's look at a couple of passages that establish this. Isaiah 63.10 and 11. Now when we think about Isaiah 63, anytime you see a number in Isaiah that's larger than 40, you ought to think that this is messianic and it's talking more about perhaps the end times, especially after Isaiah 53. The last few chapters of Isaiah really focus a lot on the regathering of Israel. So as you get into Isaiah chapter 63, there's a reminder of Israel's past failure, but an emphasis on Israel's present, uh, their, their future forgiveness and their restoration to the land. And this is going to be connected to the ministry of the Messiah and the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And this, if you look at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 63, we have one of the passages that talks about the return of Messiah to rescue the remnant of Israel from Basra, from down around Petra, from Edom. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Dyed garments is not doesn't communicate. He hasn't taken his clothes to the to the uh, local tailor or cleaning establishment to get them dyed. They are discolored by blood because he's been slaughtering the enemies of Israel, the armies of the Antichrist, and so he is covered in blood. Uh, his dyed garments coming from Basra. This one who's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. This is the uh, statement of the Messiah. His, and the question that is asked in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? That same imagery is picked up in Revelation, and that, that God is the one who will be treading in his winepress, uh, treading the grapes of wrath. What, what hymn uses that imagery? You know, that awful hymn, the battle hymn of the Republic. It's not awful because the Yankees used it, although that might be one reason. It's awful because the woman who wrote it was inspired by Revelation, but she's applying it to what was going on in the war between the states, which is a total distortion. She was saying there was a present fulfillment of that imagery on the earth at that time, which is a complete distortion and misinterpretation of Revelation. She also went on to be uh, one of the er early feminists, and she became a pacifist and a number of other things. And and she was one of the first to found um, the practice of Mother's Day and observing a Mother's Day as as a holiday, as a time to emphasize... Um, pacifism because of all the mothers who lost their sons during the war between the states. So the uh, whole observance of Mother's Day traces its lineage back to a liberal pacifist who's liberal in her theology, misuses the Bible, and distorts that in order to fulfill her progressive viewpoints. So see, it's all political and it's all wrong. Just thought you'd like that for a little extra uh, information and no charge. So we, this is the imagery. So it clearly puts us where in history, in times, in times events. Uh, verse 4, the day of vengeance is in my heart. This is the Messiah. He's coming to redeem Israel. 
Vengeance in the Bible talks about justice and righteousness. It's not a personal vendetta. We're not trying to get personal revenge. One of the things that we often hear from very confused people today when discussions come up about the death penalty is, and it's going on right now in the trial with the Boston bomber, is they say, well, we don't really need to have vengeance against him. You don't understand the concept. Justice is what happens in a courtroom. Vengeance is what would happen if you took a gun and did what uh, Jack Ruby did to to Oswald and you took out and you went and tried to kill him on your own. There's a difference. The death penalty, which is fulfilled by a court of law, is not vengeance. It is justice. And make that distinction. Uh, The Bible uses the word vengeance. Actually, you have to go back to the original, but when it is applied to God, it is a term that relates to the execution of justice. So this is a time when God will will bring justice at the at the close of human human history. Verse six, God says, "I've trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought them brought down their strength to the earth." How does that connect to what we've studied tonight? Psalm two: the nations, the kings, rage against God and His anointed. So this is the the same time frame as we find in Psalm 63. And then in the midst of, you know, these six verses that emphasize the the uh, justice of God in, in destroying the nations against him, then there's a shift in verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of Yahweh, a shift from justice to mercy, and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. God, this, this, this God of justice is said to become the savior of Israel there, uh, there in verse, uh, Verse 8, verse 9, in their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence, that's the messenger of his presence, that's the angel of the Lord, saved them. What a great statement. Connect that dot back to these those other verses I talked about last week in terms of the angel of the Lord. The angel, the messenger of his presence, saved them. By his love and by his pity he redeemed them and bore them and carried them in the days of old. But they what? What did they do? He's redeemed them, but what did he do? That's what we come to in verse 10. The context is so helpful. But they rebelled. They rebelled against that salvation, that the messenger of his presence, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned... He turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. That's what happens with judgment in AD 70. And we read on in verse 11, Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the seas with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Actually, the Hebrew preposition there means in your midst. So you have the, 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 the imagery there of Israel as a nation coming out of Egypt, and God's presence dwells with them. And then it's, it's the presence of the Trinity, 
and that includes the Holy Spirit. So we have two references here to God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to go back to the, the concept in verse 10. It talks about they rebelled against the Spirit, and they grieved. There's a key term. Now, I put the Hebrew word up at the bottom. It's the Hebrew word atzav, and it means it has a wide range of meaning, meaning. It means to displease someone, to offend someone, to rebuke, to grieve, to hurt, to sadden, to provoke. Provoke is probably the best word to use here. But you cannot, it doesn't matter which one of those verbs you use for our purposes, you, you can, displeasing, offending, rebuking, grieving, hurting, they, that can only, you can only do that to a person. That's what my point, is that this shows the Holy Spirit's a person. You can't provoke, displease, grieve a rock or a piece of wood. You can only displease, provoke a person. So the Holy Spirit is treated as a person, not an impersonal force. Another passage emphasizing the uh, personhood of the Holy Spirit is Micah 2.7, which reads, You who are named the house of Jacob, question, is the spirit of Yahweh annoyed? So this is talking about the Holy Spirit again, indicating here by the title, Spirit of Yahweh, Annoyed Again, this word may be translated impatient in your version. There's a couple of the ways it's translated, but it probably has the best idea of is this anthropopathism of annoying the Holy Spirit because you disobeyed him. And you can't annoy a rock or a piece of wood or a dirt clod or uh, an electric current. You can only annoy a person. So again, the point is that the Holy Spirit is treated as a person. And then a third verse is Nehemiah 9.30, only which says, Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. God the Holy Spirit was working within the prophets, moving them along, as the New Testament says in Second, Second Peter, and that it is done through God the Holy Spirit. But he testifies. That is the action of a person, not the action of a dirt clod or a rock or an electric current. It is the action of a person. So what I'm saying here in all of these verses is we see that, that God the Holy Spirit is treated as a person. He is treated as other passages as the one who gives wisdom and knowledge and understanding he gave artistic talents to uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, who designed the articles of furniture for the tabernacle in Exodus 31, verse 3. It is the Holy Spirit who enabled the leaders, the judges of Israel during the period of the judges, to have military victory over the enemies of Israel. So it is through God the Holy Spirit that God works through his people, even in the Old Testament. Now, the Holy Spirit wasn't indwelling believers like he does in the New Testament. It was a different ministry, but it's the ministry of a person, not the ministry of a, of a force. So how do we know about the deity of the Holy Spirit? Just a couple of passages to look at before we wrap up. Psalm 139, verse 7. This is a great passage, a great chapter to talk about God and to reflect upon the attributes of God. Psalm 139 is, once again, one of those 
critical passages in the Old Testament that are that's important for all of us to learn about who God is. Uh, David says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off, and you comprehend my path and my lying down. What is he talking about there? What attribute of God? You have searched me and you've known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. We're talking about God's omniscience. God knows everything. You're acquainted with all my ways, for there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So again and again, you have words, knowledge, understanding, acquaintance, all of this thing. The first six verses emphasizes God's omniscience. Then in verse 6, there's a shift. And the shift is now talking about God's presence and also about his spirit. In verse 7, we read, uh, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Notice in the parallelism, your spirit and your presence are synonymous. So God's presence is manifested through his spirit. His spirit is omnipresent. And this is indicated by the subsequent verses. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, literally not hell, but in Sheol, behold, you're there. I can't get away from you, God. I can't run. I can't hide. You are everywhere you're omnipresent. But specifically what we're talking about here is the Spirit. The Spirit is parallel to God. Again, this passage emphasizes the deity of the Spirit in the Old Testament. Another passage is Job 33.4. Job 33.4, which is like Genesis 1.2. Genesis 1.2. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the deep. So we see the role, part of the role of God, the Holy Spirit, is in the recreation, regeneration of the planet, I believe, after the judgment of Satan, which occurs between verse 1 and verse 2. In verse in Job 33, 4, we learn more about the Holy Spirit's role in creation. Job says the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Neshama there. So there's a relationship between the Spirit of God and the breath of the Almighty. God is using God the Holy Spirit in the process of creating Adam back in Genesis 2. If we had time, we'd go back and look at the creation of Adam as God breathed into man and he became a living living spirit. And in Psalm 104, verse 30, we see the statement made about the Spirit. You send forth your Spirit. They are created, and you renew the face of the earth. The point is that the Holy Spirit is attributed the works of God. That tells us that, again, just like the Son, the Holy Spirit has names that are related to God. He has attributes related to God. And he has actions that are related to God. Therefore, God the Holy Spirit must be fully divine. So we've seen that the Father is divine, the Son is divine, the Spirit is divine. All three are mentioned in the Old Testament. How long have I been doing this? Three weeks? And we haven't gotten out of the Old Testament yet. And we have a full orb doctrine of the Holy Spirit, just, I mean, doctrine of the Trinity just about. And we haven't gone to a New Testament passage yet. 
It all comes out of Old Testament revelation. How about that? It's not something that just popped up when the the apostles decided to reinvent Judaism because they weren't reinventing Judaism. They were bringing it to its fulfillment in the Messianic promises from the Old Testament. Now, next time, what I want to do is look at the New Testament because what we have to do is, again, come back and look at this idea. Why do the writers of the New Testament emphasize this relationship between the Son and the Father, referring to the Father as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to find that answer, we see it in terms of the, the, the doctrines that are going to be developed, that because the Son is the Son, and because he's fully divine, he then becomes the, a source of power for us in our Christian life, especially as Peter will deal with as we're facing adversity. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon these things and to, again, go through the Old Testament passages that emphasize the, the, the Son and emphasize the Holy Spirit to realize that these ideas are not something generated uh, when the apostles wrote the New Testament, but that they were present throughout the Old Testament and that they are just fully fully explained and fully developed In the New Testament, they come into focus even though they were there already. Help us to understand the significance of the Trinity, that this isn't just a fact. It is a a fact that has tremendous implications in our own lives, implications for creation, as we've seen, implications for our salvation, because all three members of the Trinity are involved in our salvation, and for our spiritual life today. Father, strengthen us from your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.